0: You know, Easter really is a special time of year. And I think for all of us here, we kind of, we understand why that is. We, it's a day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the day we remember not only what He's done for us in the past, but what He's done for us in our life, in this moment, and what He's doing for us even now. And it's a guarantee of a promise of what's to come. But you know, I think even for people who are not religious, or they don't have any kind of faith... This time of year is a time where we all collectively marvel at spring's reintroduction of life into the world. I mean, isn't it so great? I know the sun shines in the winter, but it's just not the same, is it? I mean, it just feels different. And of course, the, you know, we've had the time change, there's more light, the days are longer. You go outside and you don't have to put a coat on necessarily, you feel warmth, we went out for a hike, a walk yesterday at um, Borderland State Park, and it was just gorgeous. We had to take our jackets off before the end of the walk because it was nice and warm. And it's just such an incredible time. And you know, where the world was just white and brown, you know, it was just snow and dirt and trees with no leaves. Now there's green everywhere. It's coming out. We couldn't. We couldn't believe how green it was yesterday. We're seeing purples, yellows, reds. You know, the crocuses are popping up through the earth and they're just this uh, beautiful sensation that hits your eyes and you think, ah, finally, finally, winter's over. And I know I love winter and I know a lot of you love winter, but there really is something special when spring comes. It's, It's just a little easier to smile in the spring, don't you think? It's a little easier to have hope It's a little easier to enjoy the greatness of the creation that surrounds us. You know, I was telling, I don't know if I was telling you, Paul, I was telling someone the other day, I had forgotten how much I needed to go outside and feel warm. And the other day, with the sun coming down, I think it was 70 degrees and the sun was beating, it felt like 85 after a long winter. And I think we all can appreciate that. So for us, when we wake up on Easter morning, There's a little bit of a jump in our step, right? Hopefully, a little bit of energy that's right there in it. And of course, we had a lot of energy here today as we worshiped, and it was so great to be able to do that. But imagine for a moment, if you were a visitor from another planet, and you showed up into Dedham, Massachusetts in the beginning of February, what would you think? It's cold. It's cold. And you might think what is this dead barren planet I've arrived on where there's hardly any glimpses of life. You might think that some horrible catastrophic event was there was there some kind of a nuclear holocaust on this desolate place. You know, if you didn't know that the seasons were changing, you might just believe that this is a place filled with death and decay. And you know, I think that's what the followers of Jesus were feeling. On the first Easter, they didn't wake up that first Easter with a spring in their step, did they? They didn't wake up with excitement and hope. On that first Easter, when the followers of Jesus woke up on that Sunday morning having just buried their rabbi, their Messiah, their hope for the future, I think they were filled only with sadness disappointment, regret, anger, and fear. You know, all of these strong emotions that we do our best to avoid, that's what they were experiencing in that moment. They didn't understand what was coming. They didn't know even what had already happened for them on the cross. All they knew was that their friend and their leader, their hope, for the kingdom of god had been put to death and executed by the roman government on that cross they didn't realize that when he died he was in fact the very hope they were looking for and they also didn't know that the death of jesus was really the only way that they could get all those things that they really wanted It's hard to put ourselves back in that moment, isn't it? Because we've heard the story so many times. We know about Jesus dying on the cross, and I know that it's tempting to think, well, yeah, he died on the cross, but he was coming back. He was coming back. So it couldn't have been that bad, right? And I don't know if you were able to... uh, I sent out a reflection on Good Friday just talking about the absolute tragedy and the immensity of the pain of the cross. Um, But it it wasn't a light thing, even though He was coming back. But again, His disciples, they didn't understand. They didn't understand that Jesus took on the sin of the world and paid for the punishment that we all deserved when He went up on that cross. They didn't realize that in death, that Jesus bore the guilt and the shame of the pain of our disobedience, of our sin. You know, they didn't understand that when John the Baptist first saw Jesus and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they didn't understand that that would mean that he had to die on the cross. Jesus, in his death, was paving the path for life, the kind of life that we could only have dreamed of (laughs) apart from him. You know, before that moment, if you think about all of history, what did it mean to cling to life what did it mean to hope for life you know when you read the old testament and you see some of the writings of solomon uh, like in the book of ecclesiastes or when you read uh, some of the the lamentations and some of the psalms it seems like a lot of times the only hope in life was to just kind of hang on as long as you could and milk it for every last minute that you could until the eventual end, until your eventual death. And then, and in fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon describes life as meaningless, vanity, hopelessness. He says, look, just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you'll die. There was no hope there for being freed from sin, that slavery that binds us, the, the slavery that is both the sin we commit and the sin that's committed against us. That includes those things that we do that are wrong and those things that we fail to do that are right. Uh, all of that was just like a shackle on humanity. And also it meant no possibility of real freedom It meant that the kingdom of God was always out there in heaven and never right here with us. But Jesus had a different plan. Because Jesus knew that without Easter, without both his death and his resurrection, then none of this could have been possible. But without Easter, no one would have understood what happened on Friday. No one would have known what Jesus had done. As I said, his followers woke up Sunday morning distraught and hopeless. Now, of course, Jesus did tell his followers what was going to happen. Uh, There's actually quite a few times where Jesus is teaching in the courtyards, teaching his disciples, teaching in, in the different places that he would go about his own death and resurrection. But they didn't have ears to hear it. You know, in John 2, Jesus is telling the crowds that if anyone destroys this temple, and he's referring to his body, he says, if anyone destroys this temple, I will raise it up again in three days. And the people say, how can you raise the temple in three days? It took us decades to build this temple. And Jesus says, no, I'm talking about my body. But they didn't have ears to hear. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, that just as Jonah was in the fish, you know the story of Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the big fish? The fish comes and swallows up Jonah, who's thrown overboard into the water, and then he's in the belly of this fish for three days. And when you read the book of Jonah, the language there is very poetical, and sometimes it's hard to know what's figurative and what's literal in the sense that it says that he was in the belly of the fish, and there's some indication that he was dead those three days in the fish. It's hard to know if that's meant literally or figuratively. But then Jonah comes out of the fish and he lives and he fulfills his purpose of preaching salvation, in this case, to Nineveh. And Jesus says, Just as Jonah was in the fish for three days, so the Son of Man must be in the belly of the earth for three days, must be in the ground for three days, and then raised again. And then in Matthew 16, when Jesus tells the 12 disciples, his most intimate friends, that he must die at the hands of the the leaders of Israel, both the Jewish and the Roman leaders, and then be raised again on the third day. Peter rebukes him and tells him, no, it must not be so. And this is when Jesus utters that famous phrase, get behind me, Satan. Satan. Peter is tempting him to avoid the very thing that he's come for, the very thing that is most necessary. And then in John chapter 10, Jesus very explicitly says that he alone has the authority to lay down his life, meaning that no one can take his life unless he allows it, and that he alone has the authority to take it up again. Now, talk like that From the mouth of anyone else is what we call technically crazy. That's the technical term for that. He's insane if he thinks that's true. Anyone who thinks that they can allow themselves to die and then allow themselves to be brought back to life by their own authority and power, they've lost it. But not Jesus. And you know, I bet they had their moments, those followers, those disciples, where they thought, is, is he losing it? Can we, can we really trust and follow this guy who says that he can bring himself back to life? He's not even claiming that God will bring him back to life. He will bring himself back to life. And so it was hard. Hard to believe. But today what I want to invite us to do together is to look at one passage where Jesus describes his death and his resurrection in John chapter 12. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up. If you don't have one, there is one underneath one of the seats nearby, and then I'll have part of it up on the screen. So in John 12, Jesus is this is um, him teaching and preaching in Jerusalem right after what we celebrated last week, which is Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he's... he's uh, greeted with Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Hosanna in the highest. But then right after that, he's out in the courtyards of the temple and he's teaching and preaching. And he says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In the book of John, multiple times, his disciples ask him, are we going to Jerusalem now? Are we going to Jerusalem now? And he says, my hour has not come. But here, just the week of his death, he says to his disciples, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And Son of Man is just that phrase that Jesus uses to refer to himself. You might think that it points to his humanity, but it's actually a reflection of Daniel, the book of Daniel, where where really the Son of Man is, in fact, the God of the universe. It's actually a claim to his deity to call himself the son of man. And he says, it's time for me to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, and anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is talking about himself and he's also talking about us. There is a pattern built in to the world. There is a a reality that governs both the natural world and the spiritual world that God has built into the fabric of the universe, right? The natural and supernatural worlds were created by the same Lord and God. They were were brought into existence by by the same spoken reality of the Lord, And so in in no uncertain terms, Jesus is saying the prerequisite for life is death. If you want to see more life, something has to die. Just as it is with a seed in the ground, so is it with me. Do you guys remember the first time you planted something in the ground? Did anyone here grow up on a farm? Have that, I would say, privilege of growing up on a farm? Or maybe you grew up and your parents had a big garden outside the house. Uh, my grandfather grew up on a farm. And at his house, in the backyard, there was you know a fence around. And all along the fence were vegetables. And he had a grapevine. And he had fruit trees. And he had flowers. My grandmother loved flowers. And so he, would, he was retired. He would spend his time outside cultivating his yard, cultivating his farm. And I remember, and I, I have shared this so many times, I lament, as a kid, I didn't really eat a lot of vegetables. And now I love vegetables, and I think, oh, those must have been such good vegetables, and I missed out on them. But I do remember a couple of times my grandfather letting me go back and plant things and be a part of his, his little uh, farm, farming, uh, not expedition, his farming venture, But do you guys remember ever planting something? I mean, I remember very vividly uh, when I was in school as a kid, we did a project where we took a pinto bean and put it in a wet paper towel and a plastic cup. Did you ever do one of those? Anyone? And you get to watch this bean come to life. Uh, I was so fascinated by that. I had planted things before, but I'd never seen how it grew. And so I, I got this picture. This is from a, um, a little family blog. Their kids were doing this project, so I, I stole their picture. But it's called Life at the Zoo. I'm giving them credit, photo credit there. But it's just a picture of a bean in a cup. And, and what happens is the roots start to come out of that seed into the bottom of the cup. And then a little sprout, a little tendrils start to rise up over the cup. And again, as a kid, I just was so fascinated. And we took, a, we had a chart, and we measured it, and we showed how it grew over time, and we make sure to water it. And um, I was just enthralled. I had not been able to see that process. Uh, in, fa- in the case of wheat, which Jesus describes, this kernel has to fall to the ground and be buried in dirt. You know, and today in modern farming, the the tractor will come by with the with the attachment and they make some uh, you know the what do they call them furrows burrows I don't know what they're called and and they have the holes and they put the seeds in and they cover it up with dirt and you don't get to really see what's happening but it has to be buried in the ground and in that kernel of wheat resides everything that's necessary for life in in the wheat seed in the kernel or the corn depending on what you call it um there's a germ and that germ essentially is the dna of the plant that's the that's the part that's the information that is the building blocks of the life of the entire new plant that's going to grow and around that germ is called an endosperm and the endosperm is like it's the nutrition that's needed because at this point the the seed does not get any nutrition from the soil it gets it from itself in a sense And then there's the bran, which is the part that you either go after or you try to get rid of depending on what kind of diet you're on. Uh, And that's really a protective layer that protects the seed. It keeps the moisture in so that it can live. And then when it dries out and that plant starts to grow, it breaks through the bran and then you can see it. You can see it coming out. And... What's interesting is and I've kind of had this same frustration myself and I was reading this week and kind of saw someone else talking about the same thing uh, is that the frustration is that Jesus says that the seed dies but in a sense the seed grows. You know? it's, It's strange that he says that it dies. But as you think about it what you realize is that as the plant grows if you were to dig that plant out or if you're watching that bean grow long enough, eventually you will not see a bean there anymore. If you pull the plant out, there will not be a seed at the base of the plant anymore. The seed ceases to be so that the plant can live. The seed dies to itself so that the greater thing can come. And by the greater thing, you know Jesus talks in the Bible about people who have a 30, 50, and 100-fold return every wheat plant that comes from one seed produces about a hundred new seeds. And so you think about the multiplying effect of one plant if you were able to plant those hundred seeds and have a hundred new ones for all the hundred that were planted. You know, we're talking 10,000 seeds. You do that again, you see how this is a really powerful reality. And so... Jesus says, this is what I'm like. Jesus says, for me, it's just like the wheat. Just like with the plant, Jesus had to die in order to produce new life. Just like the plant, he was placed in the ground. Just like the plant, he gave his life so that we could live. But within him was everything needed to create new life. Just like that seed. The DNA of Christ, if you will, what it means to be the Son of God, what it means to be one who lives eternally, what it means to have power and victory over sin and death was in Christ, but now it's transferred to all who believe in Him. Did you know if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, then you have, in a sense, that DNA within you? Christian just means little Christ. The Bible says that our destiny is to be conformed into the image of the Son of God. When Jesus died on the cross, He was making it possible for that seed to sprout into many seeds, and that we would have the character of Christ, that we would receive the glory of Christ. You know the Bible talks about that too? That just as Christ was glorified, you will be glorified. The resources of Christ are available through the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ. You know, we don't have to get overly um, metaphorical here. You know, there's this, the germ and the endosperm and the, and the bran. Well, if we were, if you were to humor me, the endosperm is like the resources we need to grow. It's the, it's the reality of the Holy Spirit within us who supplies us with everything we need. And just like that bran, He protects us, seals us, and holds us in Christ You know, when Jesus uses a metaphor like this, these things are not accidents. It's really quite amazing how similar we also are to that wheat. Because Jesus says if you want to live forever, then you need to be willing to die. He says the same thing that he said about himself, he says about us. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. And anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He goes on to say in verse 26 of chapter 12 in John, Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then Jesus says, Now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is referring there when he says that he'll be lifted up. He's referring to being lifted up on the cross, being raised up on this cross for all to see but it's also a reference to the Old Testament in Numbers. Chapter 21, when the Israelites are going through the wilderness for 40 years, because of their own disobedience, they wander for 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness. And plagues come upon them when they, when they oppose the Lord. And one time there's a plague coming, and God instructs Moses, who is leading them, to take a staff and put a snake on it and raise it up. And everyone who looks at the snake would be healed and it's such a weird story i think why in the world would god have moses put a is a bronze snake on a bronze staff so that people could look at it and be healed but it was a foreshadowing of the reality that we experience today where it's by faith it's by seeing with the eyes of faith that we are healed and jesus says i'm like that bronze snake i'm going to be raised up And all who look on me will be saved. But he says, if you want to live forever, you need to die to this world. You need to die to yourself. Just as I'm dying, so you must die. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus died, we died with him. But when Jesus was raised to life, we were raised with him as well. And this is the one caveat to Jesus' story, to Jesus' metaphor. When the seed of the wheat goes in the dirt and it dies and you pull that plant out, there's no evidence of that seed anymore. But with Jesus Christ, when He dies, He is raised again to life and He continues to live. And when we die to ourselves, we continue to live. We don't cease to exist so that something, someone else can live. We continue to live, and yet others live. Jesus continues to live, and yet others live. And this is the miracle of Easter. It's that the seed doesn't stay dead. It's that Jesus doesn't remain in the ground. He's raised again. He overcame the curse of sin, and He defeated death itself. This is no regular seed. Not only did he defeat death, but by his sacrifice, we have overcome the curse of sin. And when we put our trust in him, we defeat death. Paul picks up this theme in 1 Corinthians 15. This is where we're going to end today. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're not going to look at every verse. We're going to go through a little bit, kind of jump around a little bit just to hit the, the, the relevant points. But... The Apostle Paul here describes the hope that we have in the resurrection. The resurrection both of Jesus Christ and our own. And how Jesus' resurrection is both the precondition and also the guarantee of our own victory over death. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll start in verse 3. And Paul says to his audience, to the recipients of this letter, He says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. You know, there were people even in Paul's day who said, you know, the story is nice, but surely Jesus didn't really come back to life after he died surely that's a metaphor for something surely that's a spiritual reality and not a physical reality surely what you're talking about is that you know in a sense the the message of christ lived on paul says no i'm talking about the real deal i'm talking about he actually lived that that he appeared afterwards in verse 5 it says he showed himself to peter and then to the 12 disciples." After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Paul's point is, you can go check it out. I'll give you references. Do the background check. It really happened. He says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep, meaning all who have died. He's the first one... Who died and came back to life. If he's a first fruit, which is a reference to the, the first things that you gather in the harvest, the first fruit is proof that more fruit is coming. All right? You don't have a first fruit without a second fruit. This is this is the when you plant things in the ground, you know, we there is this great movie called Faith Like Potatoes. And one of the, the metaphors for the movie is this guy is literally a potato farmer. Is he in South Africa? A potato farmer in South Africa. One of the things about potatoes is you plant them in the ground and they grow underground. And if you dig them up to see if they're growing, you'll kill them. You have to wait. And then when it's time for harvest, you don't know what's down there. But once you dig up your first plant and it's full of potatoes, then you know that you've got a field full of potatoes it's the first fruits you see the trees are starting to bud when the trees start to bud you know the other buds are coming it's still a healthy tree the tree is alive it made it through winter it's the first fruits when jesus is dead on the cross buried and then raised again on the third day he's the first fruits he's the sign that more fruit is coming So it says that Jesus is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Those who have died who know Christ, who've put their faith in him, who trusted in him, they will be raised from the dead also. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. He's referring to Adam. Death enters the world through Adam and Eve. And now life, resurrection life, enters the world through Jesus Christ. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have? What kind of body, with what kind of body will they come? Paul, ever ready to lay out a nice, well-placed insult, says, how foolish. (laughs) You fools. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He's saying the same thing that Jesus said. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, and here it is. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. What Jesus says, what Paul says, they're saying the same thing. Don't hold too tightly to this. This is just the seed. Don't be afraid of what's coming. Because just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so when this seed is planted, you will be raised from the dead. Imperishable, in glory, and in power. Does that sound good? Would you like to be imperishable? Would you like to have glory? Would you like to have power? Jesus says, anyone who will not give up their life in this world will not have eternal life. Paul says, don't be fooled to think that what is being planted is what will grow. Something better will grow. Something different will grow. This is the reality of Easter. Remember those followers of Jesus on the first Easter. When they woke up, they were hopeless and defeated. But when we wake up on Easter, we wake up to the greatest hope the world has ever known. We wake up knowing that though Jesus died for us, he also lives for us. Though he took upon himself our sin and weakness, he also bestowed upon us righteousness and power. Our life has come through his death. Today is the day we celebrate not only the resurrection of Jesus, we also celebrate our own coming resurrection. Because knowing that Jesus, like a seed, was planted in the ground in death also means knowing that our harvest is coming. Our harvest is coming. He is the firstfruits. We are the ones to come. So today, put your hope in Jesus. Take heart knowing that his life is only the first act of our eternal story. And that what we do here is only a pointer of what is to come. Revel today in the glory of Christ because his victory over death will result in your glory and eternal life. This is life through death. This, my friends, is the joy of Easter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this morning we have the opportunity, Lord, to gather, to worship, to put our trust and hope once more in you, and to be reminded that this story isn't just a story for two thousand years ago. It's a story for today. It's a story, it's a story for Can you turn that? And it's a a story for today and it's a story for tomorrow. And so Lord, we thank you that as we are here, we're reminded not only that you died and rose from the dead, but that your victory over death is the assurance of our victory over death. And so Lord, help us today, not only to believe that and to trust in you, but to uh, just receive that joy and hope and confidence that comes because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.